I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is Journey to Transformation. And today we wanted to talk about a very sad thing that's happened. And it happens to people all over the world, probably. Absolutely. So today we're talking about catfishing. Catfishing. And Tia, what do we mean? <laughs> Tia, what do we what do we mean by catfishing? I guess every kind of popular Netflix series that's happening at the moment, <laughs> where somebody lures you in with the promise of love and riches, and turns out to be somebody else, or a... yeah, and I'm sure it's happened to many of us out there. I was a do you fam- speak from experience? Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> I speak from experience in the organizational and business sense. Ah, nice transition. Good. So how does this relate? Catfishing can obviously be romantic in relationships, as you just said, but also mm-hmm. in the business sense, you might apply for a job and actually rock up to that job and find it wasn't at all what you thought it was. Or in our case, when we read a really beautifully constructed terms of reference or request for a proposal that says we are an organization that's looking to transform our way of working. We want to do better, be feminist, all that good stuff. And then you start working with them and realize that it's a horribly misogynistic organization, really top down. There is no interest in change or transforming. And it's not horrible. That is horrible to hear. And I think, so what we want to unpack today is a little bit that journey that we went on and also a little bit why, why this might happen in the charity sector and how we can actually see the signs of catfishing. Why is this a dangerous thing? How does it manifest in the charity sector? Are we allowed to say charity sector? Actually, it's a good point. What do we say? Non-profit, not-for-profit? Yeah. Well, because I think we're kind of finished saying charity. Okay. No more charity. Well, I mean, I mean I, that, like, I'm not the like politically correct police, but I just just wondering. No, it's a it's a really good point. We need to put that on that list of words or things that we're going to Bin not say anymore. Or check, yeah, <laughs> along with field and global south. We can put charity in that corner. Okay, fine. <sighs> I'm nearly forty, and I'm a millennial. Wow, Doesn't that sound weird. <laughs> But doesn't that seem weird? Because I feel not a millennial. I feel very much detached from the identity of a millennial. That's really self-reflective. I mean, I always think millennials are quite young. (laughs) By the way, I think everyone who is under 90 is really young. I have no concept of what young is. I haven't yet defined what I mean by young. That was just a slip of a tongue. (laughs) You are an ageist. Well, come on, we've got Gen Z and Gen Alpha right now, so... <laughs> Gen Alpha are like babies, like <laughs> literal babies. Yeah, yesterday, tomorrow. Okay, right. So what we know about the world of work, millennials, Gen Z, we are the generations that are just like, we need to find value and meaning and we want to be like happy in our work and like we just need to feel really good about working or else we won't work. So we like job hop, do crazy stuff like live in a camper van and drive around and do podcasts and stuff that gives us meaning because we are like now value-based creatures versus previous generations who were like rise and grind and get things done and stay in careers for 40 years. And that's what we're going to do. And I think that that's the real issue when you're talking about so catfishing in the world of work is because if you lure me in with the promise of like aligning to my values and you don't, that's a huge problem. 
it's a huge problem because people become disillusioned and how long it takes for them to become disillusioned can vary person to person. But there, there needs to be that rhetoric reality gap. I think we expect there to be a little bit of that, but you can't have too much to the point where advertent or inadvertent, it almost doesn't matter if it happens for people that they feel really misaligned to the organization's values or feel that they've been brought in under false pretenses, which has happened to us before. It's really tricky. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, on the other side of that, organizations themselves need to put time and effort into making sure their values are well known, well lived and are everywhere. Because if millennials and Gen Z are going to start job hopping around, you don't have that long to actually get them. <laughs> into your, you know, what your organization is about. You've got to really invest to have them be on board and hopefully stay longer than they might ordinarily. How do you know what your values are? Because you can read an organization's values like we are committed to whatever. I think you can read what an organization's values are, but how do you know them misaligned to yours or from your experiences? What does it feel like when you've been misaligned with the values of an organization? Big question. And, you know, I'm sure we've all sort of been there. And what I'm reflecting on with what you're saying is, you know, many years ago when I joined the sector, I don't remember that values was at the top of my list. Actually, you know, you join the sector, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to join an organization that has this mandate or this goal or doing international development wherever in the world and embedded in that is an assumption that the values are already there. So when I'm actually looking for a job, it's also, it's, I care about what their goal is, what their impact's going to be, maybe where they're based, opportunities for travel. Come on, we were all there. So the actual values bit is an assumption and it's more as we get into an organization or the years that I've spent in an organization, does that then start to unravel for me? And it's a real lesson as to, oh gosh, should I have actually in the very, very beginning done a much better job in matching mine with theirs? But maybe the issue with that as well is, you know, you can go to a website and you can see five to 10 values and a bit of a blurb, occasionally something else. But how do you find out what their values are when you're just looking up an organization or maybe you know one or two people who are connected with it. So you chat to them and you say, oh, how is it? Can you give me some insight? Maybe you check Glassdoor occasionally. But how do you know then that your values align or not? And I think this is that why it happens so often is because we don't know until we get in what it really, really looks like. Because, you know, I was very famously catfished by listening to a CEO talk about wanting to decolonize. I went into that job thinking that this was an organization that was going to decentralize its decision-making and its governance, that it was really looking to divest from the ways in which it was reinforcing inequality. And when I got in, I mean, I didn't stay in that job for very long. I stayed for maybe five months. But over that five months was like routinely painted in meetings as a nagging, angry black woman. And we'll talk about this in another episode when we talk about how to confront racism and misogyny in the workplace. But we will get an expert in for that to help us navigate that space. But it was like, how do you have these ideas? And you're you're great at telling this story about the thing that you're trying to achieve in the world. But then when you get in, you're actually, you know, I was one of a few women of color who left after not very long because it was an organization that had institutionalized racism. It's a bit shit that you have to go into organizations and we see it even with our short term projects that we work on. We have to go into an organization or get into their business a little bit before you see what it's like. So it's a really good question. You know, how do you know? Yes. Yeah, so and my question back to you was 
do you think there could have been anything, anything at all before you took that job that could have given you a sign of what you were about to end into? Yeah. So it's tricky. So here's, I think, where there's a power dynamic. One is because there were a lot of signs that things weren't on the up and up and I chose to ignore them because the salary was really good. Let's be real. I got a mortgage to pay. Okay. And that, you know, that's a hard bit. Everybody was sort of saying the right, more or less the right things. I think there were a lot of warning signs about the way the contract was structured. You know, it always worries me a little bit when they're like defamation clauses in nonprofit contracts, because I kind of feel like it creates It's the feeling, whether intended or not, of like suppressing dissenting voices. I mean, obviously they have a whistleblower policy, but stuff like that, like defamation clauses, that's a perspective issue in my mind that can be a perspective issue. So that always stuff like that kind of worried me. There was some decision making that worried me, but, you know, this was in the COVIDs. So... It was about finding a job and finding something that would give me meaning and give me value and give me purpose. And I think if you would have asked me, okay, I see these warning signs. What would, would I have done anything differently? No, because I have a savior complex. So I would go and be like, I can fix you guys. Don't worry. Like you, your shit, you just need a kind of portfolio optimization specialist to come in and help you with your, you know, structure and your governance and your strategy. I really, yeah. Um, I think that we know, like, tell me somebody who goes into an organization and doesn't have a sense that, you know, especially if you've been doing it for a while, you know, that doesn't have a sense that there's some dirty laundry out there, but still goes into those roles because you think, oh, it's not going to happen to me or I can change it or, you know, maybe it's going to be different. It's just like this, put it in the context of like a relationship or something. And it's just this really toxic language, right? Yeah, absolutely. And listening to you speak there, I was definitely reflecting on times where I've been like, oh yeah, you need me. Like I'm going to come in and, <laughs> and I'm going to help you out here and I'm going to make your system better. And, you know, I can say a bit more about this, what you need and so on. And oh, absolutely. And it kind of maybe comes back to the same echoing piece that when you're in the sector, you're also wanting to make a difference in the bigger space. And that kind of, I want impact. I want satisfaction. I want to make a difference. It's also reflected in what you think you can do realistically in an organization. And I do wonder if there's somewhat of a, alongside our savior complex, a overambitious complex because we always think we can do more than we can in the timeframes that we have. And maybe that is also the same in terms of how much we can feel we can influence organizations' values in the times that we have. But how much of that can we actually work out, right? Because in the not-for-profit sector, what we're trying to do is have big impact, is to influence big things. What comes first? Us wanting to be in a sector or that impulse within us to do those things? Because if it's that impulse already exists to do ambitious things with a particular emphasis on the social side of it, then we're always going to be vulnerable to being catfished by organizations because we're always going to think like, oh, we can just don't worry. I'm going to come in and I can change stuff and it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, I'm I'm the great reformer. (laughs) Like that that is reformer. (laughs) So good. That's a podcast title, by the way. (laughs) TM, 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 trademark, trademark, trademark. That's the feeling that you get. We've seen each other's CVs. We know the dirt in all of those organizations. You'd still go to one because maybe you also think like, well, it was really shitty at this place, but maybe it's not going to be as shitty. Maybe I've learned or maybe I've grown or, but are we just doomed to repeat? (laughs) 
I mean, <laughs> where's the perfect organization? There isn't one. <laughs> and so maybe it's like the best of a bad bunch. Like, where have they got the biggest dissenting crowd? Where have they got the biggest engagement? Where have they got the biggest something else? Diverse group of people. So maybe actually you do kind of have to select the values that you're going to go forth with into the next organization. I mean, is it that they all exist side by side? There's diversity and inclusion and everyone's perfect and you can do whatever you want contribute, feel impact. There's accountability, there's learning, equality, whatever. Or is it that, okay, this organization has a higher reflection of one or the other, and therefore I'm going to prioritize this one for the next two years. And then after that, I'm going to go and prioritize another for a couple of years, for example. Maybe it's like piecing together a jigsaw. And then at the end, you've had experience in helping organizations with every part of their values. And then you're a wholesome person. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Oh, no. Where's that? (laughs) So I said something a bit criminal there. (laughs) If what we need to do then is to figure out what our values are, go forth and carry them into the world. We have done a little bit of research here that we're going to put into our show notes to give you a bit of an idea of how you can identify what your values are. We'll do this exercise with you, Lauren, and see how it works. So one of them is to ask yourself, when were your values most alive. Think about a time when you were at your peak experience. Let me see this podcast. Eh? Oh, yeah, this podcast. Jeez. (laughs) Um, What are the virtues or behaviors or qualities that were most present at that peak point? What were the things that you were doing? What were the things you're valuing? This is a hard question. It's really hard. Values clarification, values identification is not easy. It's really, really hard. Yeah, really hard. I mean, I guess off the top of my head, it would be, I mean, what is a value? (laughs) I I mean, if I say something like teamwork, personal growth or that kind of thing, is that a value? Yes. So think about values as being a kind of universal thing, or you can think about like morals as being a universal thing, but it's the expression of them that may differ from person to person. So does that help you? Yeah. But in the space I'm thinking about, I have like really conflicting values. Do tell. I'm thinking about a particular experience where personally I grew a lot. I demonstrated values of teamwork, working across diverse groups, of understanding on a different level what impact was. This is more of a skill problem solving. <laughs> but, but the ability to um, work through things with others in a very rapid and dynamic space, which kind of represented values of learning, accountability and equality on one hand. And there's a lot of personal values in that space. Right. But on the other hand, there's systems and kind of morals, maybe, that are conflicting with that side of the values that I was generating in another way. There's a context and a space in which I would have, should have not been there as a white woman, which conflicts with the values of giving up my space. Do you want a free pass on that? I have one. It's called moral particularism. Okay. Your morals and ethics aren't fixed, they shift based on context. So maybe at one point in time, you feel like your values and your morals mean that you want to decenter yourself from the experience because you know you're a white woman with your own power. But in certain situations, you may feel that it's appropriate for you to be there so that it shifts. So that's the particularism part of it. That's very useful. Try that? Yeah. You can use that. Thank take you. that. <laughs> Everyone else take it too. <laughs> but I, mean, I think that very much describes like the feeling in that particular context in which it went one way, perhaps over the other. 
Okay. So the next way that you can identify what your values are is to think about times when they were missing. Okay. Yep. And then the third is to think about people who demonstrate values that are inspiring to you. Okay. So what are the qualities and features and values that those people hold? How do they demonstrate their beliefs? And so those are kind of three ways that you can figure out what it is you really value. For the most part, I think we kind of understand what our values are in a kind of inherent human sense, even if we don't necessarily articulate them. Yeah. And more from the third question or the absence of, I think the absence of is where it becomes much stronger or you're like, okay, something's wrong here. Yeah. What's missing? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, I had that value, you know, rather than it being present. I have to agree and say that for me, it's much easier to identify my values when I think about the moments when I wasn't doing what I should have been doing, (laughs) which seems a bit counterintuitive because you think it'd be quite hard to think about where you were fucking something up in such a substantive way that you were able to reflect on the fact that you were not demonstrating your belief system. But it feels easier for me in some ways. Yeah, completely agree. I have to wonder then if organizations should always be in value crisis. (laughs) <laughs> because then maybe they will come out better at the other side. <laughs> when are organizations really reflecting on their values apart from when they, you know, incorporate? Yeah. How many people are saying, well, what's missing from our values? Yeah. What have we prioritized over others? And do do any values get taken out or do values get kind of shifted around a little bit or are they prioritized or, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the first podcast about when your values need to work and where there's a line that you need to hold that these are uncompromising and where you probably need to think about whether your values are contextually specific. But we need to go back to the topic of a, a mismatch or a misalignment in values, which I think is a really hard thing. And you and I have both left jobs. If you're listening, but you're really sad. <laughs> You and I have both left jobs because our values were not aligned and in such a significant and substantive way that it forced us to leave. Now, of course, we sit in places of privilege to be able to leave jobs that don't align with our values. There are some situations where you might think it's actually appropriate to stay in a place that doesn't align with your values. And I think those situations are really good growing opportunities for organizations and for individuals to be thinking about, right? The organization and I, we have a misalignment in our values. That could very well mean that there's an opportunity for leadership there in that space, because you can then say, look, this is something I think the organization needs to to be doing and to be moving towards and to adopt and to live. So there's an opportunity to stay and help to grow. Um, one of my favorite phrases that I heard at a leaving party was the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. So there is a kind of opportunity for that to stay and try and be the change. What are your thoughts on that approach, Lauren? I mean, I think it takes a strong person to say, you know, I'm going to fill that leadership gap and I'm going to be the one that tries to be the change. I think it is definitely a strategy, but I suppose my my thought would be, where does the disillusionment come in here again? Because... <laughs> You know, are you again being somewhat overambitious and saying, I'm going to be the change? I'm, I'm going to fill this leadership gap. It's an opportunity. And everyone's different. People have the drive to do that. Others, maybe less so. Then you try and it doesn't work or it fails. And then what? You try again. And I don't know. I feel like, you know, there's also the danger of disillusionment.
disillusionment if you take that role. And so maybe there's a degree of collective groups that help to dissent and bring that forward. I, you can't just say that you can do it on your own. I think that the idea here would be, I mean, I love a dissenting group of people in any organization. I think they're really healthy for organizations to challenge their own thinking, to help grow. They're fantastic. Every organization should be encouraging dissenting voices so that they can improve smarter, faster, better. You're given more options. You're given more space to innovate when you're listening to dissenting voices, other ideas, other opinions, other perspectives, grouping people together around a value set and helping organizations to grow because they agree that you can't you, you can't change culture and values by yourself. So I agree with that. But, but what You're if, making a face. <laughs> I was just thinking, but what if that group doesn't exist? You have that approach and you join an organization and what if they're not there? If you are the only person who thinks that something is wrong. Then are you the one that's wrong? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's time to look in the mirror, my friend. Um, well, yeah, kind of. And is it worth trying to change? And do those people have to change? You know, if I was in an organization that was like full of white supremacists, I'd be like, no, don't know how I got hired here. Um, <laughs> Hopefully you know and the interview <laughs> I mean, you know, in a perfectly in a perfect world, they would be doing blind interviews with anonymous CVs and things like that. You know, you could end up in a situation like that. Who knows? I don't think that's how white supremacist organizations do their hiring. But I think that if you're the only one there, it's a question of do I have the like sway? to reform a whole organization institutionalized in knowledge, attitude, and practice? Or do you just leave the people alone and be like, right, cool. Like you guys vibe over here. Okay. Is it fair to try and like change that whole thinking? And does it matter what part of the organization you come in at? Because imagine you get a new CEO who's a white supremacist. I don't know why it's so easy to like use this as an example, because I think because it's really extreme and controversial, it's really easy to be like, should that person be trying to like change the organization to their viewpoint? Does it matter if it's that person or like an M&E advisor? Yeah, it matters. Why? Tell me. It matters because the CEO is in a lot of ways the, the spokesperson, the representative of the organization. So where they take and talk about the organization's values and impact or brand or goals or whatever, you assume people are going to listen to. So I, no offense to any people out there. I love you. I know that people talk to you and they want to hear what you've got to say. But I... Lauren's replying some stuff because I don't listen to her. But yeah, it matters. And I have heard of anecdotally situations where the CEO does think differently from everyone else and has mm -hmm. tried to transform and change an organization from one direction to another. And it hasn't worked. So I think it does matter. Okay. So what if you've got an organization that has a history of institutionalized racism and they bring in a new CEO who's trying to reform that? In that situation, it sounds like they're going to lose. <laughs> I mean, it probably depends on how big the organization is and also what their sector is. So there's a couple of other factors, but that'd be a very brave CEO. But I, I, Well, because if what you're saying is one person can't reform an organization and that the only consideration in that is the extent to which that person communicates what the organization is about externally. That's like one big consideration. I'm playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you. <laughs> but, but, or I take the same view as you and I think maybe you're changing your position. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you were if you're a smart CEO, <laughs> um, surely you would also you'd change your leadership team. 
like sack them all. Well, I mean, there is some, you know, we have between us and anecdotally and everywhere we go and talk about organizations have heard that leadership teams probably just need to be sacked and the whole thing started again. Sometimes they do. I mean, in that instance, if you're a CEO and everyone kind of disagrees with you, you're going to want to build a team that somewhat sways your way. That's scary though. Cause you know, the hope there is that you've got a CEO who is on the side of, is a righteous reformer. Yeah. The great reformer. If you're out there and you're a great reformer, get in touch. Yep. We're going to start a uh, recruitment company next. (laughs) (laughs) Headhunting. Okay. Value alignment. I think the real utility going back to thinking about values and where your organizations align within the organization, you've got to have conversations about values or you have to be willing to see where there's alignment across and where there's disagreement. I think that's a hard conversation because if what somebody values is, you know, I really value hard work. Hard work to me looks like putting in 16 hours, working on the weekends, all of this stuff. And that's how I feel. I live a fulfilled life. And another person is like, actually, what I want to do is think more conscientiously about my work, slow down a bit. I want to make sure I have time to restore and rejuvenate my mind. And that is what I think smart working is. It's figuring out where those two overlap and finding commonality in that, which is clearly easier said than done. Yeah, definitely. And, <laughs> and that commonality is, is complicated. Like, you know, for example, I've been in situations where I really value feedback and critique. So from my manager or boss, so I know like what I can do better or how I can improve and learn essentially. But I also value autonomy and working independently. But to have feedback from your boss requires your boss to also know what you're doing and have kind of some insight and oversight, which can sometimes have a bit of tension with autonomy and independence. To some degree, I can outline what mine are at the beginning and I have very much in the past and then found that it doesn't meet me the other way or the alignment doesn't come or the conversation about what works or where this fits doesn't happen after that point. So, you know, there's often been conversations around, yes, these are my values, these are my values. But then the next step in terms of how they align, I think it's very absent. Okay. In a perfect world, what would that scenario look like? What does the next step look like in terms of trying to find value alignment? I suppose it depends on what level. Like if it's you and your boss, for example, or a manager, then I'd imagine there should be some kind of, you know, agreement. I value feedback, therefore we'll do this at so many times, which also kind of meets their time and capacity. So I guess it's like finding the tangible activity that touches both of those. But, you know, at an organizational level, let's say they only do a human resources style feedback process once a year and then that gets forgotten. Human resources move, people change and that actually comes six months late. There's a misalignment maybe then at the organizational level, even if you've kind of talked about it with your team or the boss. So I think there's different levels. <laughs> it's it's a really hard conversation. And I think it's a hard conversation to have on many different sides of a power structure. As somebody who has been a manager of people, it's really challenging to talk to people, particularly if it's a new dynamic 
or it's a new team, it's hard to have these conversations about like, this is what I think is important. This is what I think is important. Where do we find the the overlap? And for somebody who has been managed by people, it's a really hard conversation to initiate. If like, this is how, these are the things I value. This is what's important to me. What's important to you? Like, it's a really hard conversation to initiate regardless of where you sit in the dynamic. So I, I have a real feel for people who are trying to figure this out. The benefit of starting these conversations and thinking about what your values are and thinking about how an organization is aligned to your values, that's the starting and foundational place of being able to move something along. One way is to say that, you know, fuck it, it's just not working for me. Bye. Here's your one star glass door review. Whatever. That's one approach. And one I would never fault anyone for, assuming it was all accurate information from your perspective and using your own voice. Another is to say, right, let's let's figure this out. Let's work together to figure out how our values align, because for whatever reason you want to do that, it's just a hard conversation to instigate. But knowing what your values are, thinking through when were your values most alive? When did you feel like you were in you know the peak of an experience? What was being practiced at that point? When did you feel like your values were missing? What was happening in that place? And then who demonstrates values that you respect, feel inspired by, aspire to have? What do those values look like? What are they? And to write them down as well. I find that that, that's helped me in some of the roles that I've had is to really articulate what my values are, state them on a sticky note. And that would help me kind of get through some tricky times. Because at the end of the day, more meaningful work is achieved when they're anchored to our values. It helps us get through hard stuff, particularly in the not-for-profit sector, where we work on things that are hard and challenging and traumatizing, where we live in worlds and experiences that are hard and difficult and traumatizing, being anchored to our values and always being able to come back to our values, I think is just a really important point of just being a human being at work, full stop. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think what you said is just absolutely true. And I just can't help but think that the sector is missing really fundamental conversations at every level, you know, where values are starting to be talked about more concretely. I don't know how much that, you know, allows stakeholders, partners, other people you work with also invited into those conversations. And I have to say, I think the absence of these kinds of discussions are so heavily embedded in the fact we assume impact means that values are there. I really, really do. You know, I assume that we are making a huge impact by, I don't know, working on food security, livelihoods. And therefore that's okay. That's just, my values are hidden and it's a disguise, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> values in disguise. <laughs> that's another podcast. Trademark, trademark, trademark. That's a real problem in our sector is that we can allow our values to become secondary to the mission. And that's problematic because your values are what you take out into the world. It's how you deliver on that mission. It's the fundamental philosophical core pieces of how you do your work. And I think it's a really great point to ask how are we engaging rights holders in conversations about what our values are and what their values are? Because I have never been in a conversation and I've never been in one where we were talking about value systems and value clarification and value alignment with rights holders ever. And that's the colonial part of our work. That's the savior complex in us of like, 
here we are. We're here to like do the thing for you. Aren't we fantastic? But we don't have, you know, I've never seen a partnership model where part of the thing is like, what do you value truly? It's always, okay, can you show me your last couple of years of your audited accounts and uh, show me your safeguarding policy and blah, 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 blah. Cool. Bye. It's never are we aligned? Where are we aligned? And how can we make sure that we are taking areas of misalignment and using them as opportunities to transform together and to change together and to learn from each other? That doesn't necessarily mean adopting each other's values, but that means looking and having a greater appreciation for each other as partners. I've never, ever heard that. And I've never engaged in a conversation like that, which is on me. I also can't think of a conversation where I've talked to rights holders or partners about different value systems at all. I've worked in the monitoring and evaluation space where we collect data to prove that things are working or not working and from rights holders or partners. And again, I think there's an assumption that like we're collecting things that are working. Therefore, our values are working. (laughs) But, you know, therefore (laughs) things are working overall. Therefore, our values are working within that space. Yeah. And we're collecting data from rights holders. We're talking to them. Therefore, we're obviously taking other values on board because we're giving them space to tell Mm. us about themselves. Yeah. Again, there's just a lack of separation in terms of what's working impact and values. I think values certainly seem to get beyond the back burner of our conversations and just assumed to be kind of baked into everything that we do. And that's, I think that's where complacency happens. Because in the, you know, in in, the, in our starting point of thinking and reflecting on the organizations where, you know, we've been as consultants and as members of staff where we've been catfished, it's a kind of complacency around in exactly as you're describing. We assume that we are achieving, you know, we're achieving impact, although in some situations it's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's assumed that because you're doing something or that you're like a bunch of white people doing good in the world, that your values are there and people understand them and you're fine. No, that's not that's not the case. The values are put into practice. It's what you demonstrate that's important. And I think that when we make these assumptions as organizations that because we're good people with good hearts trying to do good things, we just get complacent and assume that everything's fine. We don't need to reflect on these things because we are, you know, we put in some water points, like we're good people. You can be better and you can start by reflecting on like what your values are and who you are as an individual at work and what your organization is. And I think that that's like the starting place for all of our work is just coming back to that place. Absolutely. Completely agree. So maybe now we should just kind of come back to what can our listeners take away from this in terms of in their organizations or who they're working for, reflecting on everything we've said thus far, how can they spot a misalignment? (laughs) Or what can they do if they see there's a misalignment with their organizational values? Call the police. (laughs) (laughs) Do we not have a police button? (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, I'm going to get a siren on here. We can call the police. I don't think you spot a misalignment. I think you feel it. I think you feel it in your ways of working. 
I think it's a kind of, it's those moments where you feel unexpected strain and stress and pressure. Something that you hadn't anticipated as part of the normal thing. It's a kind of a sort of friction between yourself, your team, the organization. I think you feel it. I think it's harder to be like, Mm, that asshole over there. We are misaligned in our values. I think probably sometimes you can see it, but I think it's more of a feeling. I think it's just a feeling that you get that you're just like, it just feels weird. Things feel tense and in a space that they shouldn't feel tense. I think that's where you're probably starting to feel. Going back to those three prompts, are you operating at peak? And if you're not, there's something that might be happening. It could be a misalignment in your values in the in terms of the environment that you're working in, I'd say. What do you think? Yeah, no, I know. I think the feeling is is really key and just something that's off. It might be quite hard to pinpoint because, you know, it's hard to pinpoint your values straight off the bat. So, you know, something that feels a little bit off, something that maybe unexplainably making you feel demotivated. You know, sometimes we think we're demotivated for because we're overworked and stressed and definitely all of those things. But if there's something else in the mix there and you're like, I don't feel like I want to do the work and I'm motivated to to keep driving this forward, then there could be something wrong there with the values. A really obvious one would be if you're crying every night, which is what happened to me in one of my jobs, I would finish clock out and just cry. There was no clock out. It was remote working. I'm sorry to hear that, Tia. <laughs> that was a kind of, I think, a convergence of things, right? It was a value misalignment and it was like racist and misogynistic attitudes in the workplace. That was like an extra high pressure situation. But if you're feeling, if you're leaving each day consistently, just feeling a bit shit about what's happened, there's something is misaligned. So yeah, I think that would be kind of the first thing is how to, how to spot that shit's gone down. And what, so, you know, You've you've got this feeling you're, you know, having loggerheads or arguments with the asshole in the corner <laughs> occasionally. Um, and you're generally feeling demotivated, extreme moments, crying, just feeling really like this isn't working. There's a value misalignment. Then what? I think the first thing I would say is if you're experiencing that, get some help. Talk to a mental health professional, talk to a friend, talk to a loved one, talk to a supportive colleague. I think the first thing is about safeguarding your mental health and well-being first and foremost, before we talk about like self-actualizing and values clarification, it's like protect the brain and the heart and make sure that those things are where they need to be. Um, lots of organizations in these days have mental health days or sick days that you can take. If you feel like you're in a, you're kind of reaching a, a maxed out point, um, I would say look at that as an opportunity to take a mental health day, take a step back to just reflect. Because now we need to start separating. We need to start looking at how our value misalignment is just affecting us on an emotional level. I think that's just kind of the first place to start. And an advice that I wish somebody would have given me is to just take a step back and take care of your mental health and be a whole person again. I think that's the first thing. And I think in that conversation, that's where all of the opportunities about what to do next kind of get unlocked is when you can figure out where you are when you're in a kind of stable and settled emotional place, I think that's when you're able to better see options for addressing what to do next, to be honest. Because certainly in my situation, I was just so overwhelmed and so upset that I found it very challenging to think about alternatives of what to do. I couldn't really think through anything because I was just completely flooded with like 
experiences I hadn't had before. Once you can kind of get yourself onto steady ground, then other options kind of unlock themselves. And some of them, a couple of those we talked about before, having those conversations, those hard conversations, taking techniques from coaching, like deep listening, doing activities like user maps. You can, we'll put some resources in the show notes, but doing all of those things to kind of find ways to move forward productively and collaboratively. Cause they, you know, assuming that people aren't complete dickheads, you you can probably talk through it and figure it out. It might just be that it might just be that you've just got different styles and what you need to do is have a conversation about that. And I, I learned that being on the other end of it, where I had somebody I was working with who found it really hard to work with me because we had completely different styles. We liked different things, we had different approaches, and we both sat down. We had a conversation. We better understood each other because we did a user map exercise that helped us to understand our different perspectives and where we were coming from. And then we don't we didn't agree on everything, but we certainly were able to appreciate each other's position. Yeah, that's really useful advice. Really useful. And I think something I would like to do or have done in the past is also just get a sense of how other people feel. Like if I have some colleagues in my team that I trust or other colleagues or leadership, someone that I trust and value and you know have respect for, I would like to know where's the general sentiment? Maybe other people are feeling the same and haven't spoken to anyone or maybe other people are feeling the same and just haven't had the confidence to do something about it. So you may also be helping and supporting others in the same space and it's always nice to have others alongside you yeah you're, you're like union building yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come on everyone let's mobilize <laughs> lauren's advice get everyone together <laughs> in the night, in a basement. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, like I've been in organizations before where it's not just you that's thinking that other people also have value misalignment and there's a more supportive way to think it through and understand, okay, it's not me actually. It's a few of us, there's a group of us that think these values don't align and therefore let's approach this in different ways together. And unfortunately, you know, more people are likely to listen if it's a bigger group of people. Yeah. There's a collective kind of power Mm. that you're absolutely right. So we've got mental health. Sort yourself out first. You can't save anybody till you've saved yourself. First rule of first aid, make sure you're safe. The second one, communication trying to figure out where values align, looking for misalignment as opportunities to grow constructively together. The other option is to have discussions, trying to get a sense of the collective feeling and spirit of people who work with you, work around you, and to figure out what the sentiment looks like in in an effort to kind of build a more collective energy toward shifting culture and norms within the organization, if you can. Towards transformation. Towards transformation. Nice plug. Yeah, I guess kind of the last one is to leave, which is not the... It's not the greatest one, but it can be the healthiest one. And for somebody, you know, I'm a really big... A believer in emotional resilience and being a resilient person and being a strong person. And these are things that I really value is strength and confidence and resilience. And one of the hardest things for me in this really shitty job that I had was to leave it because I very much felt I was being defeated or that I had lost or, you know, there is a strength in retreat. And sometimes that's a good strategy to take is to step back and step out. You know, for people who are able to, I recognize that there's a privilege in being able to leave a job. Sometimes that's going to the healthiest thing to do and the safest and most powerful thing to do and something that can make statements. You know, I still get messages on LinkedIn from people in that job who mention things to me about their own experiences. So I think 
sometimes it can be helpful for other people. And you're not necessarily trying to stage a walkout, but sometimes there should be something like that, right? A collective departure from a toxic place. So those are four things you could do. Seem pretty reasonable. Yeah, definitely. There's a there's a range of actions that can be taken there um, right from the beginning through to the leaving. So yeah, I think that's really helpful. You know, not everyone's values are going to align with yours and not all organizations are going to align with people that they work with. So it's about finding the right match. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be catfished, but find the right match. (laughs) Don't be catfished and don't catfish. If you aren't like, if you're not sure about what your values are as an organization, don't talk about how you're like this gender transformative organization who's going to decolonize the whatever and like all of the jargony words that people throw out. If that's actually not where you're at and really it's the person who just wrote that terms of reference be mindful that, you know, what that creates is a sense of disillusionment when people come into your organization or your business. And whether you intended to do it or not, what that does is it creates dissenting voices that are there because they were misled. And that's a very dangerous position for an organization to be in because you may have inadvertently just created a dissenting voice because you didn't communicate what your values were. And now you've got this person who's just sitting there. Now you've got Lauren in your business who's forming unions and trying to overthrow (laughs) your shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm mobilizing everybody. Um, So just be clear. Just be clear about what your values are. And then you won't, you know, people can be clear about who you are and know what they're getting, what they're in for. I have to wonder how that applies, like in the consultancy space, though. You know, we are being taken in. We can't leave. Taken in. We're not we, strays. We, we, we've <laughs> taken in off the road in our van. <laughs> they took us in. It was so nice. They gave us a hot chocolate. <laughs> You know, but I mean, we've been kind of taken in as in like bought into what they said they were at. Mm. But then you're in a contract with someone for a few months because, you know, when you're in a job, you have the ability to kind of, I suppose you assess the situation, you respond in the ways that we've just put out. When you're in a three month, six month contract, it's harder to A, leave and B, the time in which I suppose you might uncover some of that is faster because you're going through documents and you're going through how things worked and you're interviewing people. So you're kind of perhaps unraveling the mismatch and you are giving people a space in an organization to talk to someone that is objective to some degree. So that's a space where people are from experience, very willing to, (laughs) you know, say things that they perhaps haven't been able to before. It's amazing Um, what people will tell you. So there's kind of like the job piece, but the consultancy piece kind of has a couple of other dimensions. Mm. One, you're going through people's stuff faster, documents, data, and you're uncovering the mismatch faster, potentially. To people are more willing to talk to you about the mismatch potentially, especially if you've already created trust or you're very engaged. Got some rapport that you've built. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, and, and then thirdly, what's your power 
to contribute and change to that other than the products that you've delivered. Like, I, I think there's a couple of other dimensions there in the consultancy space that are complicated. I hate you right now because we've been talking for an hour and you've opened up a whole other conversation about power dynamics. I know, but we could uh, save that one. Okay, let's talk about it for a little bit now. Okay. And then we can finish it later. You're absolutely right. People tell us wild stuff. And I think it has to do with building rapport. It has to do with trust building that gets established. But the problem for me is that I never really, you don't really know what an organization's true colors are until you see what they do with the final product. And I think that's been certainly my experience is if I tell you the things that are bothering you and the things you didn't know about were happening, if I'm telling you about those things, what you do with what I tell you is just the most revealing thing in my mind. But I don't know how much space we have to challenge culture and the way an organization works. I do think we have space to talk about it, which I'm not going to lie is kind of part of the reason why we did this podcast is because we wanted to be able to talk about things outside of contracts, about the experiences that we have working with different organizations and the way that they can potentially work with other consultants, conduct other evaluations or assessments or reviews better from our perspective, because this is not a perspective that people get generally. You have some organizations who are better at capturing that knowledge and capturing that learning. But for the most part, I think, you know, we get uh, the customary, thank you for all your hard work, really great, you know, all the best in your future endeavors. And everybody just goes their separate ways. So I don't know how much space we have to influence culture, but I do maintain that we have the agency, the space, and we should be kind of feel confident in our ability to step away from things that we don't like that one project we worked on. I was like, I'm going to give it 30 days notice because this is like complete bullshit. I was just annoyed. And I'm glad that you didn't let me do that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> where would we be now? Um, we would be still in the same space. We'd be, we'd be in the same space. I know. I know. But I think that there needs to be, I think there's a power dynamic with organizations and consultants. We're going to talk about that in another episode about power dynamics between organizations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you yeah. know this, but for every contract we've had recently, I've been forming a union <laughs> behind the door. <laughs> I wasn't meant to really reveal that. But, uh, so Lauren go. goes in, wears a, puts a wig on, <laughs> pretends to be different people and forms unions. But this dynamic is really challenging because as consultants, we're at the mercy of what an organization decides it wants to do, decides it wants to be, decide what it wants to show and can critique and take a view of our work or present our work in a way that is a misrepresentation of the process for their own public gain or public attempts at saving face. And there's just a really, I think there's a really toxic dynamic there, but one that really reveals to me an organization's true values. I think that that's, you know, top two catfishing moments. That was one of them. If I can organization really seeing what their values were by what they did with the things that we found. I think that's a really, really good point. The point in which people are willing to take on board findings or recommendations, the end product of whatever contract is really, really key. And I think that that's where I'm just going to speak for you now. We've found a a, a value in <laughs> the space between the findings and the product and what they do with it. 
Mm. and extending the offer into the space that does reveal a little bit more around how they might take it forward, in what ways, with who. And there's a little bit more of an integration between an end product and a strategy. Mm. And and I think that space is very underused in the consultancy space. Mm. It's either one or the other. There's not necessarily an interlinking piece. So hire us. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, that's what we do. (laughs) Bridge the gap between your evaluation and your upcoming strategy. So follow us at it, JRNY podcast. It's good. Yeah. What's that called? Horizontal synergy. When you do another thing on one platform to like prop up your business. I'm not sure of it. Okay. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Covered a lot today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that if people feel like there are other strategies, other solutions, leave us a message because what we want to be doing is not just a podcast that allows us to chat a bunch of shit to each other, but also to create a community where there's resources for the things that we've been struggling with and thinking about and we know are challenging and we know are difficult. Feel free to comment, send your feedback. Yeah, absolutely agree. Very keen to hear your opinions and experiences also in um, organizations where you found a misalignment. So please do share. Have you been catfished? (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right. Well, thank you for that discussion today. Thank you very much. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this was the Journey to Transformation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.